you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our study on the book of Acts. If you have to be, happen to be visiting with us this morning, we preach our way uh, through books of the Bible. That's our normal practice. And this morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. This is, of course, the story of Saul's conversion. I would guess this is a piece of history that we're pretty familiar with. And so I'm not going to spoil anything by telling you this is the story of Saul's conversion. It's a story where one of the biggest opponents of Christianity becomes one of the biggest advocates. And while that might not be a surprise to you, it might have slipped your mind of just how important this story is. Without the conversion of Saul, things would look very differently. Now, there are other conversion stories in the book of Acts. We've got the story of the Ethiopian eunuch we looked at last week. We've got the conversion of Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And those stories are wonderful and they're encouraging. And no doubt, God used those individuals in incredible ways. But there is not a conversion that comes near the importance of Saul of Tarsus. I mean, you think of the Damascus Road experience and the conversion of Saul is one of the most important events in church history. I would argue in world history. Here you have a man who wrote a majority of the New Testament. And his writings, specifically uh, just the book of Romans, for example, will be used in the conversion of some important folks. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, all of these important fathers in church history came to faith through his writings. It's hard to imagine what Christendom and the world would look like if not for God's work of conversion in this man. So this is a big event. And as we approach it, the size of this event, I want to do it in smaller portions. So today we're just looking at verses 1 through 9. And there's a concept that I think is helpful in helping us understand these first nine verses. And it's the idea of the hunter becoming the hunted, right? We can all grasp this. You have an individual who is doing the hunting. They're out searching with their weapon and all of a sudden the tables turn and they are now the hunted. You've got the classic example uh, from author Richard Connell and his popular short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Maybe you had to read that in ninth grade. Um, where there's this big game hunter who's stranded on an island, and there's this Rush, or these two Russians in a castle, just kind of this the typological uh, villain, and uh, this Russian is now hunting people. You've got other examples from film, Jurassic Park. You know, there, there's that line where the Velociraptor pops out of the bushes, and the guy with the rifle says, "Clever girl." Uh, you've got Jaws. You've got Jason Bourne. He's on the run from the CIA being hunted and they're sending their assets and their assassins to take him down. 
But those assets, those hunters, become the hunted when they meet Jason Bourne. I think that's a helpful way to think about today's text. Because in it, we see Saul as a hunter. And we remember what Luke has already told us about him. He was there when Stephen was murdered. He approved of Stephen's martyrdom. He held the garments for those doing the killing. We made the point that stoning someone is physical work. It is a workout. People didn't want to get their garments soiled and sweaty and bloody, so they just took them off. And Saul was standing there watching their garments. This killing of Stephen sparked something within him. And he started a campaign hunting down the early church there in Jerusalem. He would forcibly enter people's homes. He would drag men and women out and commit them to prison. And up to this point, his hunting has been limited to Jerusalem. But now it's time to expand the net. He'd probably heard about what was going on in Samaria and all the Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus. But hey, he didn't care about them because Samaria is full of Samaritans. And who cares about Samaritans? He didn't want to go there. But he also heard that members of the way were popping up in Damascus. And that was an issue. And so he heads north to Damascus to nip this distracting, unfortunate religious headache in the bud. So we see a man on the hunt. But this hunter is about to become the hunted. God, just like he tracked down the Ethiopian eunuch, that royal treasurer out in the desert, God is going to track down Saul. And at the exact moment that he intended from before the foundation of the world, he is going to take his shot. And this hunter of the church is going to find himself helplessly captured. That's the story we're going to see. It's the story we're going to read of. But before we do, let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Father God, we come to you recognizing that this is your word breathed out, uh, written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So, Father, we ask that you would work in it. We know it is alive, it is active. Would you work in it this morning? We know that uh, sinners come to faith and are brought to life by the reading and preaching of your word. So, Father, would you use it mightily this morning to encourage our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We have this picture of the hunter after his quarry. We see this in verses 1 and 2. And what a contrast this is. We, the chapter begins with the word, the word but. Uh, remember, we, we've just finished the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and we're told that the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way in his chariot headed south, rejoicing and praising God, and Philip was carried off by the Spirit to preach the gospel elsewhere and to make his way up to Caesarea. But, Saul, we see a massive contrast here. He's not rejoicing in the gospel. He is rather breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've heard the terminology used before. Someone's so angry they're just breathing fire. Um, that would be a good descriptor of Paul. He's, he is breathing out threats, breathing out murder. He's angry, he's intimidating, he's frightful, he's violent, and he's motivated. We think about what in the world would have motivated him to do this. Well, he is a strict adherent of Judaism. He takes it extremely seriously. And now there's this movement that has sprung up out of Judaism and This movement is claiming, that they call themselves the way. And they're claiming to know and worship the Messiah. And they're saying things like, this long-awaited Messiah was crucified and rose from the grave. Now, hearing that was blasphemous to Saul. He was familiar with Deuteronomy 21, which which states that cursed is the man that hangs upon the tree. So he's thinking, how dare you say that my Messiah was a cursed man? It makes no sense that he was a cursed man who would hang on a tree and be crucified. Now, of course, we know, seeing from our vantage point, that later this man will come to understand that the Messiah was cursed. But he was not cursed because of his sins He was cursed because of our sins. He did hang on the tree, but it was not because of anything he did to deserve it. It was because of what we have done and continue to do and that we deserved it. Saul will come to see that, but he does not see that yet. And it's inciting intense anger that they would dare to say that the Messiah The chosen one, the savior of Israel, would be a cursed man who would die on a cross. It highly motivates him. And he hears about what's happening in Damascus. And so he goes to the high priest and he says, I need paperwork. I need orders to go and stop this. 
I'm going to go visit all the synagogues. I'm going to talk to all the rabbis. And if they're aware of anyone belonging to the way, I will bring them in chains back to you. But I need your word to these rabbis because they might not listen to me. And so that's what he gets. The The high priest gives his permission slip that he's to take north. Now, interesting here. You see these believers described as the way. A little trivia for you. Christians are not called Christians until uh, they reach the city of Antioch. That's in Acts 11. We're told in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So earlier than that we'll see them referred to as believers or here the way. It's a fitting name remembering what the Lord Jesus said. You have a group of disciples following Jesus Christ, and Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that who, that, that's who Saul is after. And so he heads north to Damascus. It would have been a 150-mile trip. Probably would have taken him, I don't know, five or six days. But I'd be willing to bet that this man, knowing how committed he is, he would have traveled 850 miles just to find these members of the way and bring them, extradite them back to Jerusalem. Now, there's something humorous here with with the order of Acts. I find this humorous and very comforting. And it's that Saul completely misses Philip. Uh, Philip is in Samaria, but then he heads south and Saul is heading north. They completely miss one another. And Saul is heading north breathing out threats and murder against the church. He's on this major northbound highway with his entourage. And while he's doing that, Philip is on this deserted back road speaking to a royal court official of an Ethiopian prince. And that chariot is about to take the gospel south to the continent of Africa. It's comforting that all the screaming and the zealous Hatred and the gnashing of teeth of the enemies of the church, all of it, all of their motivation and determination cannot thwart God's perfect plan. It's just funny to think of Saul heading north and Philip heading in the complete opposite direction. So Saul heads north to Damascus. He almost gets there. We're told in verse 3, he approached the city. So it was probably within sight And at this point, this hunter becomes the hunted. The truer, greater hunter takes his shot. And in what must have seemed identical to a bolt of lightning hitting Saul, he is dropped to the ground and all of a sudden the tables have turned. Later in Acts 26, Uh, Paul is talking to King Agrippa. He'll tell us that this encounter happened at midday. Now, that's strange because in this part of the world, at midday, you're searching for shade. It's the hottest part of the day. You're hunkering down until later in the afternoon. But nope, not Saul. He will face the blazing heat to get to Damascus and find these members of the way. It's at midday. We're told that a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone around him. You know, it's hard enough for us to go outside and stare directly into the sun. Well, what 
he experienced that day was brighter than that. Because this is supernatural light from heaven. So he's struck with this light. He's knocked to the ground. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now we're going to spend a majority of our our time here. There's several things I just need to bring out. The first thing is focus on that name, Saul, Saul. There's a misconception in the church that the persecutor Saul becomes the apostle Paul. There's this misconception that at the point of his conversion, maybe he's renamed. He certainly received a new heart. A heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit after his conversion. But there's this misconception that after his conversion, he's renamed. You know, just like how God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Jacob's name to Israel. Something similar happened on the Damascus Road. And this persecutor Saul is renamed and rebranded as the Apostle Paul. Well, I... I hope I don't rain on your parade, but there's no scriptural basis for this. And I want to just give you a few examples. And at the end, I'll tell you why this is important. In, in Galatians, Paul will speak of being set apart to preach the gospel, but he never says, my name was changed. So that's one bit of evidence. But here, look at the text. The Lord Jesus calls him Saul. The Lord Jesus never renames him here, simply calls him Saul. And then later on, we'll see next week, Ananias, who is sent by Jesus to Saul, refers to him as Saul after this Damascus road. Additionally, the Holy Spirit in Acts 13, before his first missionary journey, refers to him as Saul. And you'd think that if God had changed his name four chapters earlier, why would the third person of the Trinity use the old persecutor name? In fact, this name Saul is used 11 more times after the Damascus Road conversion. The switch, this shift only happens in Acts 13 once he sets off on his missionary journey. In Acts 13, 13, now Paul and his companions set sail. So who makes the name change here? It's not Jesus, it's the author of Acts, Luke. And what we need to see is that Saul and Paul were two names for the same person the whole time. And here's, here's the clincher argument. Acts 13, 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Two names for the same person before And after his conversion. You see, Saul is his Hebrew name. He was a Jew. He was named after that famous King Saul. Who, by the way, was a part of the same tribe. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So was Saul of Tarsus. So that's his Hebrew name. But he also had a a Greek name. Saul. It's where he was from. So he has both of these. And by the way, we see this elsewhere in Acts. We'll see it about three or four other times. We've already seen it. 
Um, you have Joseph and Barnabas that have the same name, a Greek name and a Hebrew name. I mean, you think of immigrants who will come to the United States and will take on a new name. In seminary, there were lots of students from Asia. They'd come from China or they'd come from Korea and they'd have a name that didn't sound very Korean. There's one student who went by the name of Samuel. Another student who went by the name of Thomas. And these were not their original given Chinese names or Korean names. They were English names. It's the same thing here. Paul was from Tarsus, this university town in what is modern day Turkey. It's a Greek culture, it's a Greek name, but he was also educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee, and in that context, his Hebrew name was commonly used. But when he goes out on his missionary journey, that's when we see this name change. So as Acts is focused on Jerusalem and the church there in Jerusalem, we see his Hebrew name used. But as he goes out on his missionary journey to the Gentiles, there's a name change. Now, why spend so much time on this? Well, if the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is a big deal, we want to be as clear as possible on it. And there's, as Peter will say of the Apostle Paul, there's a lot of things he says that are hard to understand, and that is true. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are hard for us to understand, but the things that we can understand, we need to know. And we need to speak as accurately about God's Word as possible. So Jesus addresses him here, not as Paul, but as Saul. And notice, here's the second thing. He repeats his name, saying, Saul, Saul. And here's a rule to remember as you're reading through your Bible. Every time a name is repeated, it's on purpose. And it's deeply personal. Think of Abraham on Mount Moriah. He's holding the knife in the air about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And God calls to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy, for I know you fear God. Think of David grieving after he gets the news of his son's death. And he says, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Or the words of our Lord who said, Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or we could turn it around. Think of that warning Jesus gives in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I will declare to them, I never knew you. There's a connection here between knowledge, intimate knowledge of a person, and the repetition of their name. What we're seeing here is a, a personal, intimate knowledge and desire for relationship, and it's It's dumbfounding that the same Lord who would say, Martha, Martha, and my God, my God, that same Lord would say, Saul, Saul. He's communicating, I know you. I have purposed to place my love and my affection on you, and it's time you knew it. 
So we have the repetition of the name. But then we also have this question, why are you persecuting me? So after hearing the name repeated twice, Saul hears this question, why are you persecuting me? I'm just picturing the confusion in his mind. Who, who am I persecuting? Who is this I'm speaking to? And the Lord will answer him in verse 5 and say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Just imagine the confusion there. How is he persecuting Jesus? This is easy for us to get. I mean, just yesterday, yesterday, our country recognized the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Four planes were hijacked by Islamic terrorists. Two hit the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. One hit the Pentagon, and one crashed in rural Pennsylvania. Now, those planes fell in the northeast coastal region of our country. They didn't, they didn't fall in the south. They didn't fall in Mississippi. We obviously were not on those planes. We were not in those buildings. But those of us who were alive and remember 9-11 know that we were under attack. To attack Americans is to attack all of us. In the same way you think of Pearl Harbor, this island out in the middle of the Pacific. And yet when it was attacked, when it was attacked our country was attacked. It's the same idea here. Attacking Christ's people is an attack on Christ himself. And listen, this is a comforting thought for his people, isn't it? To know that my Lord so closely identifies with me. And he so closely identifies with you that if someone persecutes you, they are persecuting him. How comforting is this? That you are so united to Jesus. You are so hidden in him. You are so securely held by him that to abuse you for the sake of the gospel is to abuse him. I think we forget how closely connected we are to our Lord Jesus and how we are in union with him. And Paul in his writings will say over and over and over again that you are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He identifies with his people. Now Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who is this? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine what was going on in his head the moment he heard this? Instantly aware, I have made a terrible mistake. I have really messed up. I have gotten things completely wrong. This Jesus of Nazareth is not, in fact, a lying cult leader whose body was hidden and stolen away and hidden by his kooky followers. No, he is alive. And more than that, he is all-powerful, infinite God. What was Saul feeling in that moment? I'm guessing something close to Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, probably even worse. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
sure Saul was thinking the same thing. Probably thinking, okay, I've only got a few more seconds on planet Earth before I'm turned into a pillar of salt. I only have a few more moments before the earth opens and swallows me like it did Korah's rebellion. It's only a few more moments before fire rains and sulfur rains from heaven and consumes me. He had to be thinking, who knows what terrible fate is going to await this persecutor of King Jesus and his church. But that's not what he gets. That's not what he gets. What does Saul get? He gets some instructions that I'm sure he had to think, all right, is this just prolonged judgment? Is it just put off for now? Maybe that's what he thought at first. But what Saul ultimately gets is the grace and mercy of God. And we always want to be clear on our terms, and Saul just quickly define these for you. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. And mercy is not getting something you do deserve. That's the grace and mercy of God. It's what Saul receives. He receives the kindness of God. The Lord Jesus speaks to him and says, Rise and enter the city, Damascus. You will be told what to do. So just get up, go into town, wait for my instructions. That's all he gets for now. This period, this dark night of the soul was just continuing, we're told, for three days. Where for three days he didn't eat, drink, he could not see, he was blind. And he's just waiting. But he received the kindness of God. We're told that the hunting party with him, his entourage stood speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. It'd be interesting to know what happened to the rest of that group. But that group helps Saul to his feet. They lead him into town. And he awaits. You know, there's commentator Kent Hughes pointed out something interesting about this, this blindness. Because we're told that Saul was struck blind. That his eyes were open, but he couldn't see. And later we'll see that something like scales came off of his eyes and... Kent Hughes pointed something out about this blindness, but actually the, the sight that he actually receives. And Hughes says this, Though he was blind, he had seen Christ. And as he saw Christ, he also saw himself for the first time. His life was utterly wrong. He was a criminal before God. As he later wrote, Nothing good dwells in me, in Romans 7.18. As Christ's enemy, he had drawn blood and now darkness was everywhere, especially within his own soul. End quote. He had to suffer with that dark night of the soul for three days. But what we need to note here is that part of coming to Jesus is not only seeing the Savior who died for us, but seeing why. He died for us. It's seeing our need, seeing our sin, seeing our wretchedness, seeing the darkness within our heart for the first time. Recognizing that we were at enmity with God, we were by nature children of wrath. When God brings us to himself, he shows us Jesus and he also shows us 
ourselves. The hunter becomes the hunted, but he's treated graciously. He's humbled. God humbled him. This fire-breathing murderer, he was now completely helpless, led into a city. And what a blessing it was that this happened sooner rather than later. Because let's be honest, there will come a day. Scripture tells us there will come a day when everyone will be humbled and every knee will bow and everyone will be unmistakably confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and that he is infinitely holy and he is powerful and that we are sinners in need of grace and mercy. It is a blessing of God when we come to see that and know that before it's too late. Saul comes to see this. What a blessing it is. He doesn't have to find out the reality of the truth of who Jesus is and who he is post-mortem. Those are important implications. With those in mind, we need to ask some very important personal questions. We see a conversion here. We need to think about our own conversion. Are we converted? Now, not everyone has as dramatic a conversion as Saul of Tarsus. He probably has the most dramatic. I've heard dramatic stories of Christians coming to faith, but this one is the most dramatic. But I want to say that if your story is not as interesting as this, I don't want you to fret. I don't want you to feel your assurance ripped out from under you. Everyone has a different story. Some might be dramatic like this. Some, some of you might know the day and hour you came to faith. Some of you might know the season of life. Some of you might say, I never remember a day not knowing Jesus. You know, being Presbyterian, there's a special group within this church that we refer to as covenant children. These are kids who grow up in a home with believing parents They grew up in the church. They were given to the Lord in baptism. Their parents made promises and parents were faithful to those promises and read the Bible with their children and prayed with their children. And those children, Lord willing, grow up and say, you know, I never really remember a day I didn't know the Lord. I don't remember a day where I didn't know who he was and who, and who I am. And listen, that is a wonderful thing. That's, that, that's how it ought to be. But whether your conversion was loud or quiet, whether it was dramatic or it was just a slow thing that happened over time, we need to think about it. Here's some questions I thought about rewriting these, but there's no point. He words it so eloquently. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators I just quoted, he gives us some questions that we need to think about regardless of the character of our conversion. Here are some questions. He says, quote, Christ is always the hunter and the initiator. 
He brings us to our knees acknowledging how desperately we need him. Saul came to an end of himself. Have we been brought to the end of our resources? Have we been completely helpless unless the Lord intervened? Have we ever given up and given in to Christ? Hughes says, Our Damascus roads are generally less dramatic than Saul's, but they are meant to have the same effect. What is that effect? To break our compulsive independence and arrogance and bring us to Christ for salvation. They are meant to convey our emptiness and the greatness of Christ. End quote. That's the effect of conversion, a breaking of our grasp of the things of this world and our independence and our arrogance and seeing the beauty and greatness of Jesus. There's a hymn we're going to end with entitled, All I Have is Christ. I picked it because I believe it conveys this point, this end of ourselves and all of our hope and trust and identity being found in Jesus. I pray that you've been brought to that place and uh, remember that place. Rejoice in that place the, when you were found and you saw Jesus and saw yourself. And uh, by the way, I'd also love to talk to anyone who may honestly admit that I have not been brought to that place. I'd love to talk to you as would our elders. But let's rejoice and sing of being brought to the end of ourselves where all we have is Jesus Christ. Would you stand and sing with me?